Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Byron, how long have we known each other? Um, she, since the fifth grade, and we're 31. So, so a, while. Uh, a long time ago. Over Dude, 20 I years. Want, I want a number. So you're, you're confident? <laughs> I used 20 to years? know this. Uh, well, we were like... I think about what are you? How old are you in fifth grade? Eleven. Sure, probably ten or eleven. Ten, ten or eleven. So yeah, at least twenty years. It's been a long time, dude. We'll get our interns on that. We'll get our interns to fact check that and get back to us later. Does that sound good? Oh, we're starting hard with the, the fake interns in the first episode, huh? We're trying to just sound as legit as possible. I mean, we're also sponsored. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know we were sponsored? I mean, is it by you? <laughs> it, yes it is by me but it counts technically it counts i did a thing okay so it's called the millennial pastors podcast because would you like to explain or do you do i need to do shameless self-promotion uh, if you want i'll do it so okay i want i want you to say it because i want to hear how you would say it so my good friend josiah jones wrote a book about his experience being a, a senior pastor a lead pastor how do you word it Lead? A lead pastor. Yeah. yeah. Whichever. They're interchangeable. Being a lead pastor for the first time. And at the time, you were 28 when, the, 28 when they called you. Years. And so the yeah. book is about your first year in ministry as a lead pastor, opposed to being a youth pastor or associate or, you know, all the different things that we get up to in other parts of ministry. But being the, the, the one in charge of everything, leading the board, dealing with, um, just people in your congregation and the adjustment for your family. And the book also entails a lot about how we grew up because we met in church. That's we were in the fifth grade when we met, but it was in, in Sunday school. But you talk about our home church too, and just the culture that we have here in Northern Arizona, where we're from versus, you know, where you are in uh, Washington. So it's about a lot of different things but mainly what it is to be a millennial as a pastor in ministry. So it's our sponsor, whether that's legit or not, I don't even care. <laughs> the millennial pastor.com. You can get that book on Amazon. You can get the ebook version on Kindle on iTunes and all that jazz because yeah, it's available and such. But before we continue getting to know each other better, we actually know each other perfectly fine, but before we, uh, explain our story a little more. Let's just unpack that title. Millennial. Millennial is not necessarily like a choice. I, I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I decide, I decided today I was going to be a millennial. Being a millennial is someone born in basically the 80s or 90s. And there's some kind of exennial where they're between Gen X and millennials uh, folks that are born in the early 80s or late 70s. And then there's also kind of this bridge between Millennial and Gen Z, which is the next up and coming generation born after the year 2000. So being a millennial isn't necessarily just this thing where you say, I decided I really like avocado and toast, or I really, I really like ruining all the things that people have established before me. I just read an article and posted it on Facebook. Apparently, we have ruined Thanksgiving. I don't know if you saw that or not, but we like really small turkeys now because we like sustainability and all these other things. And, and then just recently, there's that article about the millennial who was like 30 and lived at home and in New York and his parents had to go to court, take him to court 
to a well, victim no, no, no. His from their house. didn't take him to court. He just, sued his parents. Just ridiculous. They uh, said, get out of our house. And he said, I'm taking you to court. Well, and he refused to get a job. And he's a bum. Needless but, to say. Yeah, no, he gives us all a bad name. And and this is speaking <laughs> as a and this is speaking as a millennial yes, who not that long ago lost a job, moved back home and lived with his parents for a little bit, and then moved in with his grandparents for a much longer period of time. And then once I got married, which was pretty recent, just over a year ago, my wife and I lived with my grandparents for a little bit too until we found a place we could afford because that's how life goes sometimes. So I do live that cliche somewhat, but at the same time, though, I also wasn't worthless. Like (laughs) when I first moved with my grandparents, I moved in with them in particular because of health issues for them. I took my grandma grocery shopping. I ran errands for them. I did everything I could outside of my my work, you know, so like ironically outside of American culture, like that would be the norm. You would live most with most cultures, your, yeah. You live with your family, and that's it's family's a big deal in most cultures. Um, even in America, like if you go to Hawaii, uh, when I lived in Hawaii as a, I was a pastor out there, we'll probably talk about that later. But <clears throat> I lived in a Japanese neighborhood, they had three, three generations living in a house regularly. That was a thing. You had grandparents, parents, and kids. And then the thing is, some of these houses were like two, three bedrooms max, like. So you really got close. Yeah, these are tight living quarters and like all the kids are in the same room and they could be, you know, from like four years old to teenagers, possibly. It's just crazy. Like, so, yeah, it's just a weird thing to say, get out, it's time for you to be on your own. However, I don't know if it's necessarily unhealthy in our culture, but the stereotype would things are the stereotype would be that, you know, millennials sit in their grandparents' basement, live in mom and dad's basement, and play Xbox all day, um, getting high or drunk or whatever, not True. being productive, not getting a job, uh, prolonged adolescence, um, taking a long time to just grow up and hashtag adult. By the way, if you go and buy my book, I use hashtags in it. If you don't like hashtags, that's cool. I don't like them either. I, I used them ironically. Anyways, we are both millennials. We might not be the stereotype. We sometimes might fit into the stereotype, um, like Byron. In some regards, I think we all are. Yes, it, you know, but like, you know, like there. I would say, for your experience, from what I understand of your experience, you guys have way too many kids already. <laughs> um, in my opinion, so you've been married a lot longer than I have. But, but like, you guys find ways to live cheaply because you have three kids and that's life student debt. And so there's things that you you know, how much you guys don't go on big vacations. You don't pour into the economy in a lot of ways that maybe our parents might have because they could afford it better then. But you know, you're taking care of your kids. You probably aren't buying a Turkey. That's 30 pounds. Absolutely not. When that's too expensive and not worth it because you're going to have, you have three children but they're also younger children. So they're not going to eat a 30 pound Turkey. You know, Absolutely. you're practical. We, we try to think through how we spend our money because we have to. Exactly. Um, and we've grown up with certain yeah. shaping formative uh, lessons from our parents. Um, and like Byron said, we're going to get to who we are, um, why we're sharing this podcast and talking about life together, but uh, also just, well, wrapping it all up. Before we go any nice, further, nice, neat little book. To, we are millennials. To be fair, this whole podcast is not to sell a book. 
<laughs> you know, it's not. <laughs> I think that's fair because I think the whole point is for us to have discussion between faith and culture and in a, a group of a generation that's no longer really participating in the church. We are trying to figure out why that is, how to fix that, how to bring faith back into our culture in a different way. Because I would say faith still in our culture, but that's probably yep. leaning more towards politics right now than anything else. And then just give voice, give voice to but, some of the issues that, that maybe we see being that, and again, we'll get to some of the, the details of this later. You and I have had a very unique um, experience in that arena of faith and culture, um, particularly growing up in the church, but also being still employed by the church, me particularly, and you on and off in your adult life. <laughs> yes. I don't know. We'll, call, we'll say it on off. Employed in ministry. Yeah. Occasionally employed. <laughs> so, anyways, before we go back to the past, let's talk about the present. I'm currently a lead pastor, and I've been married for ten years, and I have three kids, and we actually have a fourth on the way. But being a lead pastor, I, I've learned a lot, um, which is kind of why I wanted to have this podcast with you. I've been a lead pastor going on three years. I've been a pastor, and this is crazy, Byron. I've been a pastor, associate or otherwise, for almost 10 years now, which is kind of a trip. That's crazy. That is kind of a trip. And, uh, and I know you, you have on and off been in ministry, and, <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, Josiah and I both went to college together. We grew up together. We went to the same university. We studied the same thing eventually. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but... Eventually, we studied Christian ministry, got our bachelor's, went out into the world. Um, at 22, became pastors, youth pastors. Um, I did that for a while. I was at a church in Hawaii that I interned at for a summer, doing youth and young adult ministry, and eventually left there. Uh, was in Hawaii for about another year or so. Moved to Missouri for a while. Worked in uh, I a lot of my career has either been in ministry or working with special needs kids. So um, I did that for a while. I went to a facility, uh, like a group home, not a group home, but a a bigger facility, like a dorm with a bunch of kids in it and with just issues and stuff. Um, that's what got me to Missouri. And then eventually, I worked at a church, two different churches, two Methodist churches. Um, we grew up Nazarene, similar uh, tradition. But um, so I worked at two different churches in Missouri as a youth pastor for a while and then eventually came back to Arizona um, in 2016. So this at the end of the summer. So I've, you know, I started being a pastor the same time Josiah did, but have really only been a pastor for four years, maybe three, four or five years. Not, not five kind for of, sure. I, I've jumped around. I took breaks in between is a thing. So yeah, um, I, I have Your not timelines a, a little more spotty. Yeah, I haven't had a particularly smooth um, career in ministry. I've had some pretty rough situations that led to me leaving different churches, and I don't know. I've had a rough go. As and I think everyone has, especially our age. Like, but even before that. I feel like it's hard to get into ministry, um, but I've never really felt like I've had great mentors or people who supported me very well. I felt like I was kind of on my own in some regards, um, and just things have never really played out well. 
Um, but so, yeah, I don't know. And, it, you know, th- there's always the possibility I'll get back into it. Um, I still feel like it's what I was designed to do. I've just had a rough go and I don't know. What that so you would like. say you, you feel like you have been called to ministry. Absolutely. But the thing is like, like I said, I've either done a lot of ministry in, in a church or I've worked with special needs people, kids in particular. And that's a ministry. That's a ministry and in and of like, itself. So like right now I manage a group home for kids who have been taken away by the state. They're in foster care and they're special needs children and they've been neglected or abused. Um, so I feel like I'm still helping people and doing good work. I'm just not doing it in the confines of a church. Yeah. I, I feel like that's part of my ministry. That doesn't mean I'm not, a, I'm, I'm opposed to going back to the church. I do have some hesitations. Just say you got hang up. We both got hang ups with the church. That's kind of why we're, we're doing this. That's why we're talking on this podcast is I, I feel like I could say safely for both of us that we have some serious hangups. We maybe even just don't like church. And when I say that, I mean, at its present stage, the way it is currently, how church normally looks, particularly in this country, in America, we have some hangups. I would, yeah, in this country in particular. I, I'll be honest. We have some serious hangups with how church is done. I don't even need to say I might not like church. I don't like church. <laughs> I don't like it. And that- I'm just I'm just going to be honest. Like, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it right. Like, I'm just going to be completely honest and a little blunt. I don't like how this country does worship. Um, we're very focused on ourselves. We care more about ourselves. And it, unfortunately, we also seem to care more about our political leanings than we do Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I have a huge issue with that. Um, and not that Jesus was not political cause he was very political. I still don't believe politics have a place in the church. And by that, um, you mean we don't, we shouldn't, um, be partisan. We shouldn't, um, raise up a single political party. Is that what you mean by that? I don't think anyone from a pulpit should ever tell you how to think or how to vote. Um, but also I don't think either party lines up with Christ at all. Um, Jesus was clearly anti-war. He, but he's, you know, like, so, so like there's one party that tends to be more warmongering. So he seems to be against that. Um, I, I don't see Jesus being cool with abortion though, either. So that, those are just two big issues right there that both parties would be kind of opposite on. I don't think you can put Jesus in a box of politics in our country. No, I don't think so either. So, I think, Jesus, and I would say it this way, I think Jesus is pro-life, meaning he's anti-war, he's anti-abortion, he's probably anti, well, I would think that he's anti-capital punishment, because that just limits God's ability to, if we take someone's life, even if they are a criminal, and maybe they do deserve it, then that limits the, the time that God can change someone's life. And do his redemption. And I don't think we have the right to do that. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not guilty. It doesn't mean that they didn't do something very bad. Um, but to be fair, some people on death row are innocent. We've been learning that through DNA evidence and things. We've discovered people have been in jail for 40 years. Turns out they were innocent. That does happen. But but my thing is, like, I don't think Jesus would ever want someone to lose their life. So... That's like important to me to understand that Jesus is not going to fit in our political boxes on either side. And, and that doesn't mean that you can't have your beliefs 
and vote, you know, if you vote a particular way, that's fine. Oh, you're I would encourage people not to vote um, party lines. I think you should vote for candidates. And by that, I mean vote for candidates. If you think someone's going to do the right thing and, and is a good person and has some morals to back them up, you should vote for that person. You shouldn't vote for somebody because you don't like their opponent. You shouldn't vote for somebody because they're the right party. Because people change parties, by the way. Voting, they can get uh, elected and then for, change a party inside the office, which is interesting. Voting so, for the lesser of two evils is still voting for evil. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. And like, just, I mean, like the church is very political. And, and like the 2016 uh, presidential election, you know, obviously was very volatile. It doesn't matter who you voted for really on either side, people have been very mean about it and I get it. I really do. But here's the thing. I didn't vote for either of the two main candidates. Actually, to be fair, I didn't vote for any of them because I didn't like any of the candidates, including all the the third party people. None of them had my confidence. There's going to be another news article that comes out. Millennials ruined the election. Once people hear about (laughs) millennials, like with the midterms though, like, there's a lot of times I tend not to vote in the, the, the national elections because of party lines and the way people like the way these candidates are kind of controlled by money and their parties. I don't like how our system works. Um, but that being said, in this, the election that just passed, you know, this is what, what day is it? November, what's 18th, 19th, something November, like that. Three days before Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. It really is. That's coming quick. Um, so like we're in November, we just had the midterm elections and I voted in almost all of the things I could vote for in Northern Arizona. I almost always vote in local elections. Um, and most of the time in state elections, but like this whole, the whole political climate has just been very toxic. Um, and my point is, I don't think it matters who you vote for. I don't think their party's going to line up with Jesus. A hundred percent. You don't think any that, party could a hundred percent align with Jesus. I'm not even going to say like, I mean, I don't think much at all, to be honest. So like, the way we do politics. Is gonna you don't be, even but, think it could line up 50% with Jesus. No, I don't think our parties are very moral um, as a whole. That doesn't mean there aren't good people in those organizations, but. But you have other. Hang-ups. You have yeah. other hang-ups with church aside from just the political spectrum of of issues that that seem to rear their ugly heads all the time we particularly just, we just seem to get on social media yeah we just seem to get so caught up in what's going on with that kind of stuff but um like there's just so many more things and like jesus strictly told us to love our neighbor mm-hmm. and our political systems on both sides i don't think tell us that and it might be through programs or government assistance, or it could just be in their rhetoric. Both Mm -hmm. parties I think are clearly guilty of that. So that's my issue, but it's affected the church in a huge way that it's just poison. Like we've poisoned the church with our, our lives. I mean, really like, it's people being people, unfortunately. There's this quote, and I wasn't allowed to put it in my book um, because of censorship. And since I'm a millennial, I don't like the man. So I'm going to stick it to the man. And 
share this quote that for me perfectly encapsulates my my view of the church and it's attributed to saint augustine and it's it's kind of a paraphrase he has a, this whole sermon and there's about a paragraph or two in the sermon where this idea is is kind of unpacked but the general overall theme of the idea is that he would call the church a harlot or or a whore but that he would then also say but the church is my mother and so how I see that, how I take that is he's basically saying the church is all kinds of messed up. And it's because of people like you're just like you just said, we we make it messed up. We we bring our garbage and our baggage along for the ride. And anytime you get a lot of people together, it gets messy. But at the same time, what we read in the scripture, the church is the bride of Christ. And when Christ is at the head of the church, when the church embodies Christ when it's literally the body of Christ, it does some amazing things. So that's why he calls it his mother. Um, it's this this thing that we're able to experience God through. It's this thing that we can um, be a part of that helps draw us closer to God, be more Christ-like, be more moral, be more faithful. All these things can be a positive result from the church, but at the same time, it's still always going to be this thing that's a little bit messed up, a little bit off. So while we might have issues currently with the church, I think it's fair um, or honest to go back to the very beginning, uh, particularly of our relationship, but also just our upbringing in the church. Some of the things that that happened while we we're growing up. Before we do that, I think we should we should talk about our our meet cute. That's what I would like to refer to it as. Um, our meet cute has made it into both weddings, both speeches by both of us. And um, it has it has maybe different versions. Is that fair to say? I mean, we clearly both had different perspectives on it. But yeah, I mean, it, it was... You like, to, you like to say I'm a liar, though. Well, because you embellished a bit much. You were okay, a little over get into it. Let's, let's get into it. I will interject my perspectives. You can overlay your perspectives and we'll maybe give an honest retelling of the story. So me and Byron, once again, met when we were about 11 or 12. And at that time, there was a size differential. Byron was a lot bigger than me. Um, it's currently, not my fault I'm, you were tiny. That's not my fault. I was, I was an undersized. I was the runt of the litter, even okay. though I was the oldest. Well, to be fair, I was also, at that time, I was one of the tallest kids in my class. And that changed shortest. drastically, by the way. I'm, I, everyone yeah. else grew up. I, I grew up. I apparently got tall young because I was the tallest in my class in like fourth and fifth grade, pretty much. And then everyone else got taller around me. So I was tall and I was also a big kid. I was heavy. I was wide. I had a lot of weight to me. So and this is all very pertinent to the story because innocent, little, tender, um, you know, slight Josiah was forced into a corner. But okay, let's let's back up just a step. Well, okay. We're in let me, hold on, we're let me, in let me start class. this part. We were uh, in some, this we'll, is the okay. first time I've ever been to this church. It's my first time I'm a visitor. It happens to be Mother's Day. I don't really know why we chose that day, but we did. So in Sunday school class, our teacher brought in a laptop and he was having us make Mother's Day cards, and he brought in a printer as well. The thing is, it was taking forever. And there was like, I don't know, four or five of us probably. I can't remember in the class. And so we were getting restless. And so he encouraged myself, brand new kid who didn't know anybody, and Josiah, runt of the litter, to start wrestling. 
I mean, and I was, it was scrappy, weird. to be fair. Undersized, yeah. but I was scrappy. But the thing is, like, it was weird, and we were both like, we don't know each other, but this adult told us to do this, so we're like, okay, I guess. Like, I think it was and uncomfortable for both of us, but we were also 10 or 12, 10 to 12 year old boys. So we're like, whatever, it'll kill some time. I was bored out of my mind. I remember that. So it was fine with me. And so we're wrestling around. But again, I am huge compared to Josiah. It is not a fair match. That is that is very true. Eventually, so almost, almost immediately, though, in this little bout, almost immediately. And later on in life, things got more even because eventually I caught up to you and I passed you up in height and, and not. You never. We, it was much more even. It. It was much more even later on in life, but in this moment, quickly, the wrestling, I'm, gonna, I'm doing air quotes. You can't hear them, but I'm doing them. The wrestling that happened quickly turned into Josiah is pinned against a wall. And Byron has his hands on Josiah's shoulders and he's pinning him against the wall. Josiah doesn't know that Byron is about to possibly release not, not possibly. Sees. I was about to because I also knew, one, I didn't know you, and this is awkward, but I'm also huge compared to you. And I was like, okay, well, we're done. This is there's this is not a fair match. I'm literally about to pull my hands away, which you didn't know, to be fair. Um, to be fair. And then in my mind, it's a David versus Goliath battle of biblical proportions. It, it Josiah is literally. But yeah, no, but it is so Josiah is like, I need strength from on high, Lord. I don't have a sling or a stone, but I do have a knee, have a foot, a knee. Oh, the knee. Was it a new, well, whatever. I played soccer. So. Just hold your leg up and. Okay, so I brought I brought my knee up to, uh, and I can't. I, we'll call it Byron's Charlie Browns, and uh, I dropped him like a bad habit. Hard. And uh, I was down immediately. I dropped like a sack of potatoes. Like I was on the ground, writhing in pain immediately. And once I saw that happen, I looked down on the ground and I decided to run away. <laughs> <laughs> as, which was smart much. because at that point i was actually angry because before i wasn't mad and i understand like i get why you did what you did that makes sense to me but it was a little, a little harsh jacket. and you went hard man you pulled your knee up as hard as you could absolutely <laughs> and what's funny about the story is a week later it was like nothing happened, and we pretty much became instant best friends. Well, but here's why, though. I'll explain why I thought Josiah was a good, good guy after that. No, So my name is Byron. It is no longer a popular name in this country. Almost everybody calls me Brian. Even if they've, I've told them repeatedly how to pronounce my name, if they read it, whatever, they call me Brian constantly. The next week... And again, even at the time, as a kid, I understood why you did what you did. I wasn't angry anymore. I was like, yeah, he was threatened. I get it. He was like a, a, a dog that I pinned in a corner. Like, I understand it. That's why I got bit, you know? <laughs> like, But um, the next week, though, you remembered my name and you said it correctly. And to be fair, the reason I thought you're a good guy, you didn't try to choke me out after I gave you a swift knee to the groin region. And after that, I mean, we would continuously do damage to each other's bodies. I think I've sent you to the ER a couple times. I don't know if you've well, necessarily returned the favor. You sent me to the ER but, once, but because of that once, I've gone several times. So I kind of take credit for the additional I ones mean, because it's the same. You weren't injury. there for any of them, um, but because 
your initial damage you did to my shoulder has caused it to be dislocated multiple times. And I've gone to the hospital several times because of it and had one surgery because of it. So need I remind you every time you dislocate and that's, we just call it L Byron dislocated. Okay. You give me credit. Oh, you, yeah, no, you definitely, definitely call your it fault. Credit. I blame you for all of it. Exactly. So I'm going to take the credit of the numerous ER visits that you've gone to. If you're going to give me that, credit. you did the initial damage. Regardless, so it's your fault. I did. I did the initial. I was yes. I lured you to a kiddie pool at a high school camp because a girl was going to give you a hug, and then I pushed you, and you tried to catch yourself, and then we went to the ER. Really fun. But needless to say, we had that meet cute, and it was quite a cute meet cute. Um, but since then, we spent a, a majority of our time in the church setting, in faith community settings, probably getting in trouble more often than not. Um, yeah. And to be fair, I don't feel like we always deserved to be in as much trouble as we were in. We would have ridiculous things happen. We would sit in the front of the sanctuary. And of course, we're like 15, right? And we would play. We could, this is before texting was a big deal. This was before you could actually look at your social media on a smartphone. This was pretty much before smartphones. So we would fart around and like write notes on paper, call them analog texts. <laughs> People would watch us do that. And they would like flick our ears. Numerous times I would get flicked in the back of the ear in the middle of service. Sure, I maybe should have been paying attention to the sermon a little more, but I'm 15, folks. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously? Honestly, that one wasn't as, Not to as mention, big of a deal to me. My father, in every church I've ever attended with him, has in some capacity helped lead music. And so he's on stage. And so like my entire life, this is before Josiah, but like even after that, I would get in trouble after church on a regular basis because I was screwing around during worship and my dad saw me occasionally he would straight up point to me from the stage. Like he'd be leading congressional worship and he would just point his finger at right at me and stare deeply into my soul. And I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) What I remember from those moments is suddenly you stopped farting around out of nowhere and I would look at you and you'd be looking down. And then I, all I would have to do is look at the stage and catch the look from your dad. I'm like, Oh, Byron's in trouble, and I might be in trouble too. We'll see if this makes it to my parents' ears or not. But there are other things that would happen too. I mean, honestly, we we're dumb. You got me to climb on the roof of the church one time, and we played okay, frisbee. Like we threw a frisbee on the roof. This is also a story in the book, but we threw a frisbee on the roof, which was an accident. But you did not. It's not we like you were it. like. I didn't have to talk you into getting on the roof. You're like, oh, get it. And we got you on the roof. I'm sure. Now, here's where we went I'm wrong. I'm sure there was no real coaxing that needed Here's where to we happen. went wrong, though. And this was a dumb teenage thing to do, but we and we shouldn't have done it, but we did it anyway. You got on the roof. You threw the Frisbee down to me. And then instead of you coming down immediately, um, we, we I catch. threw it back to you while you were on the roof. But you intentionally, you intentionally threw it away from me so I'd have to run around on the roof. That's probably And it's also important. It's also important to note that I was almost certainly running over top of all the Sunday school rooms that our parents were in. Yeah, so, well, luckily for us, our youth pastor got outside before anybody else and said, what are you doing? Get down. <laughs> and then we, and we frantically the, got Josiah He did down. the, you're in trouble. Yeah, and he did the, you're in trouble, but I'm laughing. So just the get thing, out of yeah, here. Well, he, we didn't get in trouble. But the thing We're, is, like, older people came out shortly after he did when Josiah was already off the roof. And we just walked in the other door and acted like nothing was wrong. And I don't know Otherwise what he did. I think he just looked up and was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, he covered for us. 
We basically had numerous other occasions to be in trouble when we didn't deserve it. I specifically remember in my mind, we had a two-service system at our church on a Sunday morning. So we basically would have a high school Sunday school class meet during the first uh, worship hour, I guess it would be called. And then the second worship hour, there was a senior adult class that would meet in the same space. Um, while we would go over to the sanctuary and be in the worship service. And I specifically remember, and I just thought this just showed so clearly to me how much these people thought I was a second-class citizen at this church. They would come in during our Sunday school hour, um, so like an hour and a half plus before they were actually going to be in there, put Bibles on seats and say, that's my seat. Don't you sit in it. Don't even touch my Bible. And just kind of say very rude things, not to mention they would also come in at the tail end of our Sunday school class. And for most of our high school, middle school years, our, my father was our Sunday school teacher. They would come in at the tail end of a Sunday school hour. And while my father, who was our Sunday school teacher for much of our adolescence, was still teaching, they would open up all these cupboards and we were adjacent to a kitchen. They would open up that roll roll up top thing. That's like a fire. So break, So it's metal and loud. And they would be banging around cups and getting coffee ready and full on gathering in the back of this room, talking at full volume, completely ignoring the fact that we're in the midst of a Sunday school lesson and that maybe we would like to not be interrupted or hear what our Sunday school teacher is saying. And all that told me growing up, and I don't know what you took from that or how you responded. All that told me is, wow, they could care less about me. And it wasn't everyone in the church. It wasn't all of the older generation, but in particular, that group of people made it very clear that they did not care. Yeah, I feel like in that church, that time um, in particular, like there was some good old people there, but there was a lot of people who just had blatant disrespect for anybody. And their approach to life was, I'm older than you, you have to respect me, I'm your elder. But they were very rude to people, and not just us. They were rude to other like adults, too. Um, they just weren't very nice people, in my opinion. Um, but, like, they, yeah, they're just like, you know, that whole, like, Bible, putting the Bible down on their seat. Like, this is for my seat when, when I need it. My dad always had one of my best, my favorite responses to that. I was like, don't you need that for church, which you're going to right now? Like, I feel like you should have your Bible in church. <laughs> and they also, like, I mean, I didn't really know about it too much then, but, like, our youth pastor told us, later in particular that like he got all kinds of crap from that stuff. Like those people would go after him because we'd move those Bibles. Like the second they'd put them down, there's a couple times I looked him right in the eye, picked him up and moved him and put him on a shelf somewhere over there. Like they'll be there after you can come get him when you're ready for Sunday school. Like I was just done with it. I was tired of those people and they would go yell at him about it. And he was, he tried to play it nice, you know, but he's, but you know, legitimately this is our Sunday school area. You get it after the fact, you can't just take it from us. Like they didn't care about our generation. Now, the thing I find funny about that now and also tragic is that when you wrote this book, people of that generation kind of got mad about it in some regards, some people and and a few people who are who are the stories we're talking about in that book. I've heard some interesting responses from some who are very overly positive, which I thought was funny because they don't remember that they did this stuff because there's this, there's one gentleman in particular, and I, I go I attend the church that we grew up in again. It's I've been I was gone for a long time, but I, my wife and I attend that church right now. 
And yeah, so you're going to the church as an adult, back to the church yeah. you and I grew yeah. up in right so, now. Um, but one of those gentlemen who I remember, one of the stories clearly in the book is about him. Josiah was there visiting, and he went to one of the, the oldest Sunday school class we have. It's, it's designed for the older generation, and the, the, the person teaching it wanted Josiah to share. And they bought some copies of the book and were very supportive. And, and, uh, he had, you know, he was just so this guy, this one gentleman in particular was so excited about it. I was like, dude, there's at least two stories in this book about you being a jerk. And I just think it's funny. <laughs> Does he I not remember? Think, I don't Does he not he remember? It's him. But the thing is, to be fair, the older I've gotten, the more he's treated me better. So maybe he's changed. Maybe he realized yeah. he was being that kind of person. I don't know. Um, but it was just, the whole thing was interesting to like, to talk to the, like you were presenting your book to these, this group of people who several of them were the problem. To be fair though, not all of the stories I share and not all the stories we're going to talk about on this podcast are negative or hypercritical of the generations before us. Um, but that, that has been formative. That has been something that has shaped our perspective of the church, our opinions of the church, and that has done the same thing to so many. Our generation is the most noticeably absent from church currently, and I think the church needs to own some of that. But I did share some some stories of people that basically saved church for me. Um, I actually had the awesome opportunity of talking to a person who seriously was one of the those from the generations ahead of us that really went out of their way to show me that they cared about me, that they loved me. They, they were one of the people that actually let you and me be ushers and trusted us enough, showed us that he cared about us enough, wanted to enable us to be a part of the church enough that he would give us all of the tithes and offerings from the service that we would usher in and allow us to walk it to the other end of the building around a corner where he couldn't see us to drop it off in this particular office where money was counted. And I know that that sounds like a little thing, but he was trusting us with a substantial load. Like he was giving us not just like a, a literal huge amount of trust, but a metaphorical trust was being given to us saying, you know what, you're part of this. You're a part of this church. I trust you. I want you to be a part of what we're doing. And he even went so far as to say, I know that most of the time ushers have to wear this particular clothing or that particular clothing. Our church was very traditional in the way that you had needed to wear a suit and a tie. But he basically said, I just want you to come in what you would wear on a Sunday morning. And that's cool with me. And he, he went out of his way to just make us feel a part of church, made, make us feel loved, show us. And we have no biological connection to this man. He just was a good dude. And so I had the privilege of opening my book to the page where I talk about him. And I said, this is you. I want you to know you are one of the people that saved church for me. I want you to have it. And I just gave him a copy of the book and it was really special to me, but there still were a number of people that saved church for me, which is why I am still involved. There's still enough good. There's still enough redemptive qualities. There are still enough people involved in the church that in my opinion, God is able to use to keep church at least close to what he wants it to be. Well, and I, I agree with everything you just said, but the other reason that I'm involved in church still, at least at this point, I'm not really super actively involved, but I do participate in certain ministries. I don't lead anything right now, but I go regularly. Um, I'm, a, I'm a faithful attender. You know, I'm a part of the church. And that's because I don't feel like you can change something from the outside. Like the church needs to own a lot of that stuff we were talking about, but 
after they own it, then they got to change. Something has to be different. And if there's nobody in the church of our generation, then the church is going to die. Instead, I think our generation needs to say, yeah, you know what? Church has never been perfect and they've hurt us in different ways and it's been crappy, but we have to commit to it to change. We have to, to be quote a part my of hero. Well, and he might be your hero too. Ron Swanson is he, he was, he would also be a personal hero, right? He's a libertarian. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is, this is a show. It's from a show, but uh, his, the quote, Ron Swanson, the, the quote I'm going to quote of Ron Swanson is he's going to walk further into the belly of the beast. And what he was talking about was his loathing for the government and how much it spent money on things. And he basically said, why do we even need the fire department? I personally have put out three fires this week and saved the tax dollars, thousands, tax taxpayers, thousands of dollars. But there's that similar mentality that I have that you were just talking about where I feel like there needs to be some significant change, some reform, some whatever you want to call it. And the best way for that to happen is by still being engaged, by still being involved, by walking further into the belly of the beast. <laughs> it's a terrible, I don't, I'm not calling the church a beast. I'm just quoting Ron Swanson because the same idea applies. Well, especially in, in roles of leadership. So like, I know lots of people who are beginning to become like, I have several friends who are our age and you, ha- you know them as well who are becoming lead pastors. Um, and that's a huge deal because it's the next generation saying, yeah, you know what? It's time for us to take some of those reins. And in my experience, if you're a associate pastor, a youth pastor, whatever, some kind of children's pastor, you don't really have a lot of say in how the church is run. You're there and you might be able to control your ministry somewhat, but you don't really get to tell the board you know, a vision necessarily. Um, like when you take over leadership, you're more responsible, but also you get to take the reins somewhat and you're not doing it by yourself, but you have more control. So we need and, to step and up and more, start doing you're different, yeah, we have to do different things. Like we have to, we have to go. And with you, like my situation, I was hired specifically because I brought a new fresh perspective and my, the people at my church are amazing because they basically own that. Yeah, we might we might be kind of be stuck in this rut of trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so as a result, they extended the invitation to me to come and be me, which is super encouraging for a person like me. And that's that's really the the heart and soul of what I think this podcast is going to be about is talking to others that are in similar situations, but also talking to people that have completely written off church or faith communities at large, talking to young people, particularly millennials, but maybe not exclusively millennials and talking about the issues, um, faith and culture, um, how those things intertwine, how sometimes they don't always mix super well, but going forward, that's what this podcast is going to be about. Me and Byron are going to talk with other millennials, oftentimes, those that are in ministry currently or have been in ministry at one point or have at the very least grown up in church and have big deal stories as to why they decided to walk away. Um, Stories that maybe show that they were wounded, stories that maybe the church needs to hear because we need to stop doing this. We need to stop having all these young people that are just overflowing 
with stories about the damage church did to them. To be fair, sometimes we vilify church too much and maybe we over-exaggerate some of the you know, damage we might say church has done. But we need to be accountable. We need to be honest. We need to be transparent with the things that have happened and let those things change, shape, grow, strengthen us for the future. So the future is happening now. I mean, I've been told so many times, you're the future of the church, but really, I'm the present. I am the current. I am the right now of the church, and so are you, and so are all these other individuals we're going to talk to. So join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. We will hear from yet another millennial lead pastor, one that has found themselves in similar situations, being involved in a church, but still maybe having some hangups, some things that they would like to address. But if you'd like to contribute to this conversation, then drop us a line. You can visit us at our website, themillennialpastor.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Rev Millennial, or you can join our Facebook page, The Millennial Pastor, and talk with us, share ideas with us, and share your story as we continue to journey and dialogue, as we ponder what it means to be millennials who are people of faith, living, and culture. Until next time, I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. And if you want to hear what millennials think, or you like hearing about the faith-based work they are doing within culture, then join us next time on the Millennial Pastors Podcast.